Hey y'all, Melissa here. Things have shifted dramatically since we aired our last episode. There's now a crisis in Ukraine and sanctions on Russian oil and gas. And this is all on top of record demand for petroleum products and electricity as the world emerges from lockdowns. Suffice to say, it's a shakeup in the global energy industry. So we're going to change up our show for today. And this week, we're bringing you an episode from the other podcast that we have here at the Center on Global Energy Policy. It's called the Columbia Energy Exchange. And this episode is about the energy security implications of Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine, the Iran nuclear deal, and the future of energy innovation around the world. The episode is hosted by my colleague Jason Bordoff and digs into the reasons for the energy crunch and what could happen next. We'll be back soon with a two-part series about chemicals, in particular those chemicals that are made of petroleum products like oil and gas. Petroleum products are everywhere in our lives, in places that we might not expect them to be. We're talking about the fertilizer that grows our food, the nylon in our clothes, and even the plastic syringes that deliver vaccines. But how can we decarbonize these essential products? And if we look beyond carbon emissions, what are the health and environmental justice impacts that we should be aware of? It's going to be a good show, and it's directly connected to the oil and gas conversation that we're having today. So stay tuned. There are going to be these different stages of very deep decarbonization. And that is not giving up on deep decarbonization. It said we got to fold that into the plan. The world is facing a potentially severe energy supply crisis as already tight markets are being crunched still further by the loss of some Russian oil exports and by fears that those supply disruptions could worsen and spill over to natural gas and other fuels. In response, energy prices and commodity prices more broadly have soared in the last few weeks. With global energy markets experiencing historic turmoil, policymakers face a challenging series of decisions. How to keep energy sources secure and prices affordable for consumers how to protect against risks of Russian supply disruptions, and then use energy as a source of economic leverage to end Russia's war in Ukraine, and how to accelerate a transition to clean energy in the midst of global upheaval. This is Columbia Energy Exchange, a weekly podcast from the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. I'm Jason Bordoff. Last week, I attended CIRA Week, widely regarded as the most preeminent energy conference in the world. And what a week it was to be there in Houston. While at the conference, I had the privilege to sit down with Dr. Ernie Moniz for this podcast. Ernie was the 13th Secretary of Energy, serving under the Obama administration in the second term from 2013 to 2017. Dr. Moniz also served in government in the 1990s as DOE Undersecretary and as the Associate Director for Science in OSTP, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. He was a physics and engineering systems professor at MIT and was the founding director of the MIT Energy Initiative. He's now CEO of EJM Associates and the Energy Futures Initiative, which advances solutions to the climate crisis through building coalitions, thought leadership, and science-based analysis. In this conversation, Ernie and I dug into his perception of the energy security threats caused by the Russia-Ukraine crisis, where things stand on the Iran deal, and where the clean energy transition goes from here. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Secretary Ernie Moniz, thank you for being with us, making time to join us on Columbia Energy Exchange, sitting here together in Houston at Sierra Week. I appreciate it. I know how busy these few days are for you. Okay. Pleasure, Jason. So, obviously, this uh, the world's largest energy conference comes together right now at a pretty fascinating time, given what's happening 
uh, in global energy markets, commodity markets, uh, with Russia's barbaric aggression in Ukraine. Just can you talk about, I just want you to reflect a little bit on what you have seen play out over the last two weeks, particularly with a focus on energy. It has far broader humanitarian uh, implications, uh, of course. But in historic context, when we think to the 1970s and the energy crises we faced there or others since then, how do you think about what's playing out right now? And let's then talk about where we might go from here and what it means. Well, I think the uh, uh, the volatility obviously is uh, uh, quite uh, quite extraordinary, as it was in the past uh, at, at at various times. I think the the uh, the issue is <laughs> right now the extent to which the in some sense the customers for Russian oil, in effect implement their own sanctions programs. Uh, and uh, so with regard to oil, which is obviously a major uh, revenue stream uh, for, for Russia, uh, I, I think uh, school is still not out in terms of uh, where we are going in terms of overall. Levels. How we'll look back on this in terms of the severity of the oil Correct, crisis, right. it's, too soon, it's too soon to know. Yeah, because the reality is uh, it's hard to see that there's been major uh, macro uh, disruption uh, in the market yet, but I don't rule out that coming, particularly as, I mean, the United States uh, sanctions uh, on uh, on Russian energy imports do not necessarily show uh, much prospect of being, I think, uh, the determinant uh, of how this turns out. On the other hand, uh, if this becomes the pattern you know, m most of the main customers, then then we can see that. Uh, there are some, there are a few things, I'll just say, like ironically, which can go in the opposite direction. Uh, for example, as we sit here today, we don't know if there will be an Iran deal. But if there is, there will be more oil on the market, uh, for example. Nothing like the amount that could come off the market uh, with Russia. But again, uh, I think we have to wait a little bit to see how that plays out. Uh, with regard to uh, to gas, uh, I think there is no doubt that uh, we've already seen it in Europe, uh, stimulating additional import capacity. Uh, the Germans have already announced uh, building uh, two uh, import terminals uh, for LNG, which they had resisted for a long time. And we know historically what that's done, for example, in the Baltics, they built an import terminal uh, with the main effect of lowering the price of Russian gas uh, uh, coming in, so it'll that'll be a very that'll be a very peculiar market dynamic uh, there. Uh, but uh, gas is, uh, I think, uh, has every potential to be uh, more volatile because a lot of it is point A to point B, uh, and uh, you can't then go you know market it on uh, on on a, on a spot market. Uh, for example. So, um, so again, I think we will see uh, the extent of the, of the disruption, but I think the gas markets uh, will continue to be uh, very high priced uh, in, in Asia and Europe. We are in a situation where uh, I think we have skated through this reasonably well so far, but a lot of it has to do also with fortunate weather. You know, the weather can can go in many, many directions. We saw, for example, uh, a part of the initial pressure on the gas markets coming because the North Sea wasn't, wasn't the wind wasn't blowing, uh, for example. So uh, we have a lot of, I, what I would say is that we have not managed the risks 
even though we have not yet uh, suffered uh, dramatic consequences, uh, other than, of course, the, the, uh, some volatility in the prices. And let me come back to each of those, oil and gas. So just help people understand how to think about oil markets. It seems to me like we've gotten some conflicting signals. The Biden administration banned the import of Russian crude to the United States. Not that much Russian crude comes to the United States. Had diplomatic dialogue with the Europeans to get the Europeans not to do that. Right? We don't want, didn't want the Europeans to do the same because you're talking about two and a half, three million barrels a day of Russian oil. Very hard to replace that. Oil prices would go through the roof. But to your point, maybe it doesn't matter what government does because the social stigma, the pressure, the uncertainty about other financial sanctions means whether government acts or not, Russian barrels are going to be lost to the market because co companies across the board, energy and otherwise, are just saying, we're not going to have anything to do with Russia. Is that what you see happening? And then what happens to those Russian barrels? Is it easy for them for flows to shift around, maybe state enterprises in India or China can buy them, they're less susceptible to the kind of pressures a company like Shell are, and how does that impact the eventual the oil price uh, well, result? I, I mean, I certainly think China is, is going to take uh, somewhat more oil uh, from Russia, and they'll take it with a big haircut on the, on, on the price. Uh, Russia will not, even in the oil it sells, it will not benefit uh, from the uh, excursion in price as we see it because, again, I think they will have to sell at a, at a big discount. Uh, but I still think that there is every prospect that the pressures coming from the private sector, from the financial institutions, from other companies, et cetera, uh, may very well uh, cut into uh, their exports, and it's a lot of exports. Uh, I mean, I think it's, it's roughly five million barrels a day of crude, uh, plus a few million of the, uh, of products. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, doesn't, it wouldn't, it wouldn't take much disruption, uh, of that, uh, flow, uh, to really, uh, have highly volatile prices unless someone like OPEC stepped in, but they have shown, uh, no, um, no inclination, uh, to do so. Uh, and, and even there, the capacity is, is limited. They couldn't offset all of that. No, they couldn't offset not but, all of that. But yeah. if, we're, if we're talking on the margin of a couple of million barrels, well, OPEC could do, could do a lot. We could do some uh, petroleum, some, some reserves for a while, uh, you know, make up a million or maybe even two million globally. Strategic uh, stocks that you have often told Congress correct. they should not sell off for other reasons. Yes, uh, stop using it as a piggy bank. I could tell you the story about how there was a trade uh, between uh, health care and uh, and petroleum reserves, but uh, that's, uh, that's a different story. Uh, but also, you know, I think we don't often connect all the dots uh, well enough. For example, there is no doubt that the Saudis and the Emirates are not very happy with United States foreign policy at the moment. Nothing to do with the energy markets directly, but for example, uh, the missiles and drones uh, that are pretty indiscriminately uh, harming those societies coming from Yemen, presumably supplied by Iran, we, we have done essentially nothing to, uh, to address that. Uh, I bet we would have more cooperation on the oil front if we were. Uh, so, you know, uh, in the end, we've, we've got to talk about who are our 
friends uh, or potential friends, and I don't mean necessarily hugging friends, but just, uh, let's say, those who cooperate with us uh, in various, in various Mutual dimensions. Mutual shared interests. Regional uh, shared interests, et cetera, exactly. Uh, so um, I think there are some levers to, to help, but clearly not if there is a, you know, if there was a total dislocation of Russian supplies, I, have, I see no way that that, that, could be, uh, that could be replaced, but I don't expect it. One more question on where additional oil supply might come from. You mentioned earlier it could come from Iran. Few people may be able to comment with more knowledge on how you see that playing out because you helped put the original Iran deal together. The Trump administration pulled out of it, and now this administration is trying to put it back together again. Russia is an important player in that. The potential for Russia to scuttle the deal is real, I think. You, I'm curious what you think. Where do you see the Iran deal now? What are the prospects for it to come, for that supply to come back to the market? Well, of course, as we tape this, uh, we still don't know what the outcome will be of the negotiation with, uh, with Iran. Uh, but uh, at the moment, uh, I, I may regret these words, but I would say that I'm reasonably optimistic uh, that the uh, agreement will be restored. And I say optimistic because I think it would be a good thing to have it restored. And maybe it's worth an as a little aside on that, um, uh, because clearly time has gone by. Uh, we've lost a uh, few years. Uh, we, we've seen Iran really advance substantially in their centrifuge technology. They've also produced a lot of enriched uranium, including some up to 60%. Uh, but, you know, the extra uranium, that can be reversed uh, pretty easily. You can't reverse the knowledge they've gained mm -hmm. in terms of the advanced centrifuges. But the... The agreement, the JCPOA, the Iran agreement, uh, I would say the two major elements are the verification regime, which would come back into force, and the most important single nuclear restriction is that which constrains them to 300 kilograms of, of enriched uranium with enrichments no more than 3.67%. And that goes until 2031. So, you know, we still have nine years of runway uh, on that. And that is the most significant nuclear constraint on, on their program. And for people who, in Congress, on both sides of the aisle, might push back and say this deal is not a good deal, it's not good enough, the breakout time is shorter, there are other concessions being made to Iran, your, that would be your response, uh, or and also what the alternative might be, which is well, not yeah, that I mean, desirable. Well, item. we've we've seen what the alternative is, and it's not very good. It wasn't very good in two thousand three, uh, when we, uh, uh, we, we, the United States, the the Bush administration at the time, uh, decided that uh, you know the only deal would be one in which they gave up uh, enrichment and reprocessing entirely, and something they they wouldn't do. So no deal resulted from a very, very small program to 19,000 centrifuges when we negotiated in 2015. Uh, now we've gone back again and with the Trump administration in 2018, and what's happened is, okay, now it's more centrifuges, more enriched uranium, and more advanced centrifuges. So the best we can do is at least try to get back, get another decade, uh, and hopefully use it reasonably wisely uh, in terms of addressing uh, regional issues. But we just got finished discussing the fact that we haven't done anything 
with regard, for example, to Yemen, which is an enormously important problem to the Emirates and the, uh, and the Saudis. Uh, two of the major oil producers. So these things all kind of hang together, and uh, 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 clearly if Iran, uh, if we go back into the deal, it is, it is also the case Iran will have more resources, uh, just as they did in, in 2015, uh, 2016 technically, uh, when, the, when the deal was implemented. Uh, and um, uh, some of those additional resources, there's no doubt, as in any country, some went to the military, uh, not an overwhelming amount, uh, but, but some. And I would argue it's hard to see how that made any qualitative difference uh, because when they're sanctioned or when they're not sanctioned, they don't seem to have any problem with the relatively inexpensive support for you know, militias and other, other groups that cause so much problem in, in, in the region. So anyway, we sh I think we should, we, should, we should go forward. And um, I'm, I'm guardedly optimistic that we will go forward with an agreement. Now, you mentioned the role of Russia. First of all, it is true that in 2015, when the, first, when the deal was originally negotiated, Russia and, and we already had you know, some pretty serious uh, falling out, shall we say, over Crimea uh, and the Donbass, uh, once again, Ukraine. And yet, they were by far, in my view, the most helpful of the other countries involved in getting the deal, and especially in getting the deal implemented. We relied very heavily on Russia uh, for the implementation. That's where I would be more concerned now, because the level of sanction uh, and, the economic, and the economic dislocation is enormously greater today than it was in 2015, uh, I mean, as a result of, of Crimea. Uh, so it's very, it's very possibly the case that Russia will follow through as they have threatened uh, to make the implementation extremely difficult. If that happens, then we are going to need, especially France and the UK, to step up big time. As I said, the most important of the nuclear restrictions is that 300 kilogram low enrichment uh, restriction. Well, that means many, many tons of enriched uranium have to once again leave Iran. They, it all went to Russia the first time. If it can't go to Russia, it better go to some other country uh, which presumably France and UK, because of their uh, nuclear military establishment, would be the most logical places. Uh, the United States uh, would need a legal change to be able to, to take that material. Maybe that's possible. I doubt it. So, uh, so France and the UK uh, would have a, uh, a much bigger role, I would say, in the implementation this time around. Speaking of nuclear, coming back to Russia's invasion of Ukraine now, Russia, we know, is a huge oil exporter, gas exporter, coal exporter, um, also the fuel that runs many of the world's nuclear power plants, including many here in the United States. Talk about how you think this Russia-Ukraine 
invasion might play out in nuclear power, either for exported uh, fuel for the nuclear power plants or because of an intentional or unintentional uh, act that could cause an accident uh, at a plant, and the outlook for nuclear, where Russia is building many of the world's nuclear power plants right now. Is there going to be a big shift where people no longer are willing to, to go that way with Russia as the supplier? Well, uh, there's a lot of questions in there. Uh, uh, first of all, the United States imports uh, roughly 20 percent, um, on average, a little bit more than that, um, uh, of its uh, enriched uranium for, for uh, fuel for our nuclear power plants. Uh, a disruption of 20 percent would be significant. Uh, it could be addressed uh, for some time, at least, by uh, borrowing, uh, not borrowing, really, uh, using the reserves that the Department of Energy uh, already has, uh, including high enriched uranium that could get blended down uh, to, uh, to reactor fuel. But, you know, that's finite. And uh, we've always been told that those reserves are being held for uh, applications that are, are important to the, to the military. Well, the problem is if we use that up, we have actually in the United States zero capability of uh, providing uh, the necessary nuclear materials for the, mil for the military, whether it's uh, nuclear propulsion in the Navy uh, or tritium for the weapon stockpile. So uh, I think that um, if Russia uh, does uh, disrupt the, the flow of that uh, low-enriched uranium, the response of the United States, I think, has to be the combination of uh, downblending uh, from the stockpile plus getting off the dime uh, and starting to build the enrichment capacity we need then to be able to service the, mil that the military takes a long time, needs. Or how long does that take to build that capacity? Um, I, I would say in five to six years, you could probably get a... Uh, 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 a uh, national security scale enrichment capability, which is what we need, because for commercial uses, uh, we don't. We can use other technologies, including the technology that is deployed uh, by Urenco in uh, in New Mexico. So, so I think there there is a Plan B, but the Plan B is not simple. Uh, it it requires us to do something that we have been delayed doing for a long time because it costs billions of dollars. Uh, to build that capability. Now, uh, another issue is, of course, the safety of the Ukrainian uh, nuclear uh, reactors. And there, I'm certainly concerned. <clears throat> I mean, I don't think, I can't imagine that anyone would really want to see uh, a major uh, accident uh, with major radiation releases from one of the Ukrainian plants. But what I'm concerned about is not direct attacks on the reactor cores, but all of the unhardened uh, systems that are required for operating the plants, especially if there is any kind of emergency, like the backup uh, power generators, the fuel for those generators, a lot of fuel, liquid fuel sitting there on site that could go up uh, um, by mistake or, or, or intentionally for that matter. Uh, the, the, the spent fuel pools uh, need to be cooled, electricity has to flow, or the, again, one will have major problems. 
So what I'm concerned about is kind of the fog of war. Uh, the Russian military is involved in military activity uh, near these nuclear power plants. Does, they don't understand how a nuclear power plant uh, operates. Uh, they don't understand the sensitivity to some of these backup systems, uh, for example. Uh, there's no uh, reliable uh, command and control uh, system uh, to, to guide them in that. And in addition, having a trained nuclear reactor operating staff operating for days and days on end, sometimes at gunpoint, is not very encouraging for uh, reacting to a possible stressful situation that, that could arise. So there's lots of reasons why we should be concerned and, and I think Russia should, uh, should have a clear plan don't fight near the power plants. If they are going to take over the power plants, they have to understand that they have to responsibly operate them. Uh, and they have, to, they have to have their experts, uh, you know, tell them where the sensitivities are, like you can't cut off electricity to these plants. Uh, that's what happened in Fukushima, basically, uh, for example. So, well, that so, will, so uh, that's a big issue. lose a little more sleep tonight after hearing all of that. And then the point about building new nuclear power plants. Russia is building many of them around the world. Yeah, if I if I may first uh, go no no just to say in, in Ukraine, of course, the other uh, extremely troubling uh, nuclear development was the uh, essentially explicit threats uh, by uh, by Putin to use nuclear weapons uh, under duress, uh, shall we say? Uh, you know, if the West is helping uh, Ukraine, etc. Uh, and uh, there. Obviously, we all hope that a nuclear weapon is not used, um, but even if a nuclear weapon is not used, we have been harmed by the announcement that Putin made because uh, it has cast nuclear weapons right to the center of security policy. Uh, and that's exactly where we didn't want to go. Uh, that you know, uh, this is a this is an invitation for proliferation. To me, it almost guarantees that China will follow through on building a thousand weapons in this uh, in this decade. For example, it's just again, as I say, I think you can't put the genie back in the bottle in terms of the threats uh, that uh, that Putin already made. Then internationally, well, you know, China, uh, Russia uh, already is building, I think, something like two-thirds of the uh, power plants uh, outside of Russia. In most cases, a lot of sunk costs. These are typically not in the wealthiest countries. And so it's hard for me to see them walking away. So uh, I, I would expect to see Russia uh, continue, at least with those plants, uh, their new order book uh, might, be, might look a little bit thinner. Um, but then, you know, what we probably buy then is a lot more Chinese-built plants, <laughs> uh, and uh, so you know this is a, this is a difficult situation. But I think the what the, the, I mean the ideal outcome would be that the new kinds of technology, small modular reactors, for example, that the United States is spending a lot of effort uh, in developing, those I think will look very attractive to many to many countries. And that's a chance for the United States to get back into the game uh, in, a, in a serious way. But the only way back into the game is to deploy in the United States first. Uh, 
that, that is what then, quotes, sells reactors. So in the meantime, that means we've got to get across the finish line uh, on some of these, uh, some of these new, uh, new small modular reactors, uh, for example. If all we do is sit here and complain about it and not permit them, uh, for example, uh, if not perhaps use, using governmental purchasing power uh, to get across the finish line, military bases uh, uh, could be could be an example. Use, uh, as has been discussed, use of DOE sites uh, to have the first reactors put up. Mm-hmm. Create an order book uh, so that uh, manufacturing facilities can be built uh, for the uh, for the guts of these of these reactors. Uh, if we don't do that, we will not gain that market because nobody's going to buy that reactor. I think the first of a kind, without having seen it licensed by the by the NRC in in this country. Really interesting. That uh, outlook for nuclear power in the U.S. will have a whole separate podcast on because super important. And there's uh, but sadly limited time. And I want to come back to one or two things on the immediate crisis too. You mentioned earlier the role of natural gas, and Europe's highly dependent on Russian natural gas. Lots of plans now, an IEA 10-point plan to dramatically reduce dependence. Um, I think they said by one-third. The European Commission, even a broader goal, two-thirds or 80% reduction You know, by this winter. It's not that far away in use of Russian gas. Are those just aspirational, or how much can Europe really do to be in a better position if we were to see a disruption in European gas? I don't see how uh, that can be accomplished in in this kind of a really really short time frame. Uh, now I think that you know they can they can build in a couple of years new uh, regasification facilities for uh, for LNG, uh, for example, and uh, and there's no doubt that that has uh, that can have a major impact, uh, and not only in the additional volumes of LNG, uh, if those volumes are available, uh, uh, can, can be imported. But it also, as was demonstrated in the Baltics, uh, it can also put a lot of pressure uh, on the market and the pricing in the market, including the pricing of Russian gas. Uh, so um, so I, I think that we will be seeing that. Germany clearly has already committed uh, to building uh, two, two facilities, uh, which they had resisted for a long time doing. Of course, they were counting on Nord Stream 2, which uh, now is certainly um, tenuous uh, uh, at best. Uh, so, um, so clearly, I, I, think, uh, I think LNG volumes are, are a major, major play, but, but, but the reality is uh, while the uh, regas facilities, you know, it's, it's not that complicated a, a construction the uh, exporting facilities are, are a bit more difficult, uh, uh, more expensive. Uh, in the United States, uh, we have now seen uh, some new capabilities uh, just coming online, in fact. Uh, but, you know, in the end, I think that's going to be uh, about a 10 to 15 percent increase uh, in our uh, export capacity. Uh, and it'll be a few more years before uh, yet additional facilities come online uh, and increase our uh, our export capacity maybe to fifty by fifty percent, uh, let's say uh, in uh, in in five or six years. Uh, so I mean there is some possibility there, but that of course means we also have to produce uh, more gas. Uh, and by the way, going back to the earlier discussion, more oil. This in turn is going to require 
uh, we, we have about half the number of rigs deployed uh, that we, we used to have, or about 500 versus 1,000. Uh, 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 more rigs have to be reborn online, as, as you know very well. Uh, producing from shale uh, is drill, drill, drill. Uh, and, uh, and the financial institutions got uh, tired of uh, drill, 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 borrow, borrow, borrow. Uh, and, uh, and so they, they have put a lot of pressure on the industry uh, to focus more on the financials, on the cash flows, on returns to investors, et cetera. Uh, I think that has to change pretty quickly. First of all, with the prices so high, although until recently at least, the futures market was priced considerably lower than the current uh, current market for, for, for oil, uh, let's say. So meaning that the, the market expects the price to go back down, but uh, I, I think that this is the place where, for example, government has to use its jawboning power and possibly get creative in terms of uh, backstopping some uh, some risk management because well because the financial institutions I think have to be convinced to get back to providing the debt service uh, to allow these companies to uh, to to increase their uh, their production and uh, certainly at the moment uh, that would entail of course very <laughs> for them very attractive prices very unattractive prices for the consumer uh, and as you know i'm i'm particularly concerned about uh, social equity issues uh, uh, in terms of these these high, these high prices that's another subject that <laughs> we 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 could come to uh, but but i think um, uh, this is where the the, the federal government needs to work with the major financial financial institutions as a security banner uh, to do this. But as you also know, without naming names, uh, in the uh, political dialogue, there are a lot of people who, A, don't want to support the oil and gas companies, and B, don't want to support the big banks. <laughs> And it's exactly that combination that one needs right now. If one, I mean, if you see a role for government policy to remove some of the risks from financial institutions in terms of their returns in order to make sure enough capital is available to grow yeah. domestic oil Correct. and gas production. Right. And, and I think how that's done, that can be done in a regulatory approach or, you know, et cetera. But uh, I think... Um, I think uh, a Treasury and the uh, and and the and the banks uh, can figure that out. I think uh, pretty pretty easily about what it would take to go there. Because after all, there's a very good prospect that that this is going to be a very profitable uh, direction. It's just that they were they were they were burned and they and they uh, uh, they really have made this the the decision. They had made the decision uh, to really kind of hunker down and manage manage the financials. Uh, as the as the primary business. In response to the security risk Europe faces from dependence on Russian gas, the loss of Russian oil supply, I hear you talking about investing in Europe in a more diversified set of infrastructure, import terminals, storage, pipelines for natural gas in Europe, and increasing domestic in the US oil and gas production. And I thought we were supposed to be moving to a net zero economy faster than we are. So is this crisis going to sort of undermine or are there, do you see the way in which it could accelerate also the transition to net zero? Well, I mean, uh, in terms of oil, what we're talking about here is the potential to replace oil taken off the market. Uh, and the reality is there's going to be significant oil use for, for 
quite a while. Uh, even the IEA's uh, sustainability uh, scenario, climate scenario, uh, has uh, substantial oil and gas still being used uh, at 2050, even within a net zero uh, economy, of course, because they have also moved towards uh, assuming very, very significant negative carbon technology deployment. Uh, I would overly, I would, overly optimistic in your view, carbon removal. Uh, so I, I think carbon removal uh, definitely is going to be a significant player, but there may be a little bit of uh, over enthusiasm uh, uh, at the moment in terms of uh, the level at which that could that could that could occur. Uh, but of course, that is that is part and parcel of having that ongoing oil and gas use uh, with net zero. You need you need net negative you need negative to to compensate, obviously. Uh, so so that's important. But on the gas side. Uh, I think that uh, gas, I think we still have to keep looking at uh, as part of the solution. Uh, the, uh, uh, we understand the, the risk that, again, the financial institutions would be concerned about in terms of uh, investments that could get stranded. Uh, but that's where I think we have to we have to i think uh, face up to the issue that look we are going to have 20 25 30 years more of, of substantial use we are going to uh, need to export to our wealthy allies like japan and, and south korea uh, we are going to have to uh, look at the gas developments in uh, middle income and even poor countries certainly in africa where they are discovering their own uh, gas uh, resources uh, quite quite aggressively. Uh, they have every intention in their strategic planning to be using those resources domestically. Uh, I mean, they will have exports as well, but uh, but uh, but domestically uh, to uh, help with their development and their industrialization. But they also need access to capital uh, to do that, and that's where. Um, I have to be blunt. I, I, I think the, the decision made in Glasgow in terms of uh, kind of cutting off finance uh, for that is a mistake. Uh, that we need to be able to take a more, uh, a more coherent overall view with a underlying understanding that deep decarbonization is not something that happens at the same pace at, at, in countries at very different levels of development. Uh, I mean, one indicator of that is United States and Europe have said net zero in 2050. China and Russia actually have said net zero in 2060. And India has said net zero in 2070. Now, whether those are realistic dates or not, I think it makes the point that as you go down the wealth scale, you know, in the World Bank, uh, uh, India is in the lower middle income uh, category versus the upper middle income uh, category. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, the, the poor country uh, category. Uh, and so, uh, poor, I mean, low income, uh, low income uh, category. And so, um, you know, we have to, I think, recognize that there are going to be these different stages of very deep decarbonization. And that is not giving up on deep decarbonization. It said, we've got to fold that into the plan. 
if we want to plan like everybody goes to net zero in 2050, I have no idea what we're talking about. It's just not going to happen. And it even conflicts with the statements that have been made by a country like, like India, for example, which is making enormous progress in many dimensions, but has a giant problem to face. You know, we're going to have one and a half billion people, uh, uh, many of whom still don't have proper energy services. Uh, lots of rural people, uh, all kinds of issues. Uh, I, I really, I do admire much of what they are doing, uh, but we have to be realistic about what all of this means. The idea of gas as part of the solution and a transition uh, fuel uh, this seems to be shrinking recognition or support of that in the climate movement. And I think what some might say in response to what you said is the carbon budget is we're running out of time. We've spent the last decade doing very little, and so we just mm -hmm. the carbon budget is what it is. There's no room for this anymore. Alternatives like renewables are cheaper than we might have thought a decade uh, ago. And, and methane uh, leaks are potentially a worse problem than we realized when people talked about gas as a transition fuel a decade ago. How would you respond to those concerns? Well, first of all, on the, on the methane side, I mean, I think there is, it's, it's an, I think it's a no-brainer that the industry should be working really hard uh, to uh, stop uh, or dramatically reduce uh, methane leakage, even recognizing that you know, the, the Glasgow pledge of 30% methane reduction in reality means virtually eliminating methane from the oil and gas industry and doing nothing about agriculture and, and other areas that are actually uh, two-thirds of the, of, of, the, of the emissions. So, you know, we also have, we need a lot of innovation if we're going to uh, develop, I mean, address the methane pro problem broadly. Outside oil and gas, right, yeah. Right, uh, uh, But... Anyway, I guess we start where we can, because uh, it because it is a very a very important problem to to, uh, to address. Uh, now, with with gas, uh, first of all, okay, well, look, we all know that almost all of the reductions that we've had in the United States have come from coal to gas switching, uh, and we're only like halfway there. Uh, and so we still have a quite a ways to go. Many other countries uh, are in a similar, similar situation. Uh, and China has done a b quite a bit of coal to gas uh, uh, switching. Uh, not that they are <laughs> coming down on the curve of, of emissions, but, uh, uh, but, but that's the case. And, you know, I, I just think it's, it's also very, very difficult for us to be lecturing uh, you know, developing countries in Africa uh, about not using uh, gas for their uh, uh, development uh, when uh, we are continuing to uh, produce, maybe produce more to serve the, the export market, uh, for example, uh, and uh, recognizing that those countries have such a small footprint that uh, I believe that they will be better stewards, if you like, of the environment, address climate uh, more effectively as they develop. Uh, and, uh, you know, we all know that, for example, development really empowers women in, that, in, in those societies uh, who currently are not part of the, the economy in a, in a meaningful way because there's no time for them to be <laughs> part of the economy. Well, if we build that kind of society, it's going to be 
uh, I think, a society that more more aggressively faces up to these problems and doing 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 their part. So uh, again, I just don't. I just. I, I I think we are too often just focused on one idea. It's like we cannot accommodate several ideas and connect a few dots. Uh, and uh, and until we are realistic about that, uh, I think we're just creating headwinds uh, on the climate problem. And we're only two weeks into this. It's early to to tell. But but how. Do you have a sense for how this Russia military invasion of Ukraine will affect the conversation about the clean energy transition? I think it's really hard to know. I, I mean, I can, I can make arguments for almost every outcome. Um, but what, I, what really confuses me, putting aside the, the energy uh, uh, sector, uh, is I just don't understand the end game in Ukraine for Russia. Every option seems to be unpalatable. So I think un until we see how that settles out, it's very hard, I think, then to go on and speculate about things like, like, like the impact on the, uh, on, on the energy sector. Uh, but whatever the case, what's already happened, I think, I hope, is going to make the overall conversation linking climate and energy security more intelligent. Uh, and there's a lot of headroom to make it more intelligent. Uh, so, uh, yeah. so we're I mean, trying to do hope. our small part. We were yeah. just about out of time, but, but before I let you go, I had the chance earlier today here at Sarah Week to interview you and Lord John Brown about innovation and technology outlook in energy. You follow this and uh, as closely as anyone. So I'm curious what you see coming around the corner in, in what kind of innovation and innovation and technology improvements you're excited about. Uh, what technologies are we maybe not talking enough about that you think uh, you're more optimistic about? Well, I think you know it's it's very important to uh, this is said often, but to consider various timescales. Uh, certainly in this decade, uh, it's really about deploying uh, uh, a lot of technologies, and so. If we look at, let's say, the administration's 2030 goal of a 50 to 52 percent uh, emissions reduction economy-wide, it's very clear that a lot of the, the lead horse is going to continue to be the electricity sector. Uh, I'm not sure about 80 percent, but in our scenarios, we envision something like a 65 percent uh, reduction in the electricity sector accommodating the overall 50% uh, reduction. That, sorry, that's where we're headed, or that's what would happen if we had a new policy like Build Back Better or, or something else? So, yeah, so these scenarios uh, uh, assume the Infrastructure Act is, is put in place and that there is, that there's hundreds of billions of dollars of extra policy support going forward, but all paid for. You got to pay for it, and that comes through the tax code. So this is complicated uh, to all to all get done. But what I want to say is that you know the the uh, if you're going to get that kind of a reduction, say say two thirds in the uh, power sector relative to 2005, uh, that you're going to need a huge additional deployment of renewables, 500 gigawatts maybe in this in this uh, in this decade. So there. It's less a question of the technology innovation as it is the business model and policy 
innovation. Because again, those projects have to be investable and investability at that scale is probably going to require dramatic expansion of grid infrastructure. That's where the, that's where the technology innovation as well as other innovation is going to have to come in. As you look further, there are other technologies where this decade is the one where we start to deploy them, but with the idea that they become material in the next decade. A couple of examples there, carbon capture and sequestration uh, is one where we think uh, one needs to have a, uh, you know, a, a material, not huge, but material impact in this decade with the idea that it can, it can expand dramatically in the, in the 2030s and probably be essential, particularly for industrial decarbonization. Another, of course, is hydrogen. Uh, we have a long way to go in terms of the cost reduction. There's a lot of innovation, whether it's electrolyzers or other, uh, other, uh, other, other approaches. Uh, uh, the infrastructure is going to require a lot of innovation uh, in, in, in hydrogen, uh, et cetera. But that's, again, a case where, you know, it's clearly an agenda item uh, to, to be addressed. A third area, uh, where, which, again, uh, will not be dramatic in this decade, but Let's, we got to get going on it, is all of the negative carbon technologies, carbon dioxide removal, by which I don't mean just direct air capture, but the whole suite of, uh, of, of technological solutions, technology-enhanced natural solutions, and if we learn how to count properly, natural solutions as well uh, uh, coming in. Uh, so those are examples of, of areas where, you know, it's not magical to think uh, think about it, but they'll come in. And of, I, of course, I should have added uh, nuclear nuclear uh, reactors, uh, fission reactors as well, uh, where there's there's never been so much innovation, but but we still need to get across the finish line uh, and demonstrate some of these uh, with with the, with the pilot the pilot projects. But then there is the the the, the real long poles in the tent. And, uh, uh, and here at Zero Week, uh, we had a session on uh, fusion, nuclear fusion. Uh, uh, now, a lot of people uh, will still be uh, saying the old joke of, you know, it's 40 years away we'll all, and always will be. Uh, well, that joke doesn't apply anymore, in my view. Uh, and once again, it's, a, it's an area where there has never been so much innovation there has never been so much private capital going into it. More than $4 billion of private capital uh, has, has gone into this. Uh, uh, we, we heard here at Zero Week, we heard from CEOs of two of these privately uh, funded um, uh, companies, uh, one an MIT spin-out, which in September demonstrated the new magnet technology, high temperature superconducting magnet at 20 Tesla. This is a lot. <laughs> uh, 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 an, an MRI machine is the scale of a Tesla. Okay, just to give you an idea. Uh, so take 20, 20 times that. They demonstrated that. They, didn't have, they don't have a fusion machine yet, uh, they're building, but they, they demonstrated the core technology and that unleashed 
$1.8 billion of private capital to actually build a machine. To invest in the, in to the company. To invest in that company, right. The other company that we had here today uh, uh, is a company, a TAE, that's actually been around for more than two decades. And they've gone through five generations of machine. They say the next machine is going to demonstrate the conditions you need for doing deuterium-tritium fusion. So bottom line is there's a significant possibility that in this decade, the requirements for a fusion machine will be successfully demonstrated. That is not the same thing as having a power plant. Uh, you still have to do that, all of that engineering and, and get the costs to be manageable, et cetera, et cetera. But this is not where we were. And for me, this has been a revelation, just frankly, in the last, in the last years. I have been amazed to see the progress that's been made. And uh, I think I mentioned the, the second company has a totally different technology from the first company. Uh, and there are several other companies with each different technologies. Uh, and, uh, and if this works, I mean, if, if, a fusion, if fusion ends up being contributing in the power sector, it is a complete game changer uh, for carbon-free electricity with plentiful fuel uh, and with no, no public safety dangers, no high-level waste, uh, long-term high-level waste uh, challenge, et cetera. It just changes the game uh, and provides the foundation of firm power that I believe is essential in a reliable and resilient electricity system. So, you know, um, uh, innovation remains uh, my biggest hope. Uh, uh, I do mean technology and business model and policy innovation, uh, and my confidence in those innovations uh, is in inverse order to what I just stated. <laughs> Highest for technology, lowest for policy, uh, but... Uh, that comes from the uh, scars of the last uh, last se several decades. Well, you've seen the challenges firsthand of innovation in policy with several stints in government, and uh, it's we started with a little bit of a bleak and worrisome outlook for what might happen with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but good to end on an optimistic note with what might happen with innovation and technology. So, Sarah Week is incredibly busy. I know your calendar is packed, so thanks for being so generous with your time and joining us today, and thanks for your service again for several stints uh, in government and, and continuing today. Well, thank you. But, but I also want to say, I also, I'll put in a plug for you as well, you and uh, your colleague, uh, Megan uh, O'Sullivan, because uh, for another discussion, I think that uh, trying to refocus the discussion from the end point of deep decarbonization to how you get there, I think is exactly right. And so I think that's uh, maybe I'll interview you next time. <laughs> I would be on, honored. On that. <laughs> and uh, I appreciate your saying that. It's uh, something we feel really passionate about, and, uh, and she's brilliant, and, and I love working with Megan, who you know well. So thank you for saying that. Good to be with you. Thank you. Okay. Ernie Moniz, thank you so much for being with us, and thanks to all of you, our listeners, for joining us on this episode of Columbia Energy Exchange. The show is brought to you by the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs. The show is hosted by Bill Lovelace and by me, Jason Bordoff. The show is produced by Stephen Lacey, Jamie Kaiser, and Alexandria Herr from Postscript Media. Additional support from Tori Lavelle, Kirsten Smith, Lily Lee, Daniel Propp, Natalie Voke, and Q Lee. Sean Marquand engineered the show. 
For more information about the podcast or the Center on Global Energy Policy, please visit us online at energypolicy.columbia.edu or follow us on social media at Columbia U Energy. And please, if you feel inclined, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. Thanks again. We'll see you next week. 